you for however long you would tarry on, Lord, that from our lips we would proclaim that you are indeed our portion, that we will be with you forever, Lord, because you never change, and your word says that it is so. All glory be to you, Father, holy, holy, holy. Lord, you have come to this earth, lived, died, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. Lord, it is on that that we proclaim that you are sufficient and authoritative for all that is done here this morning, that we are able to stand and bring our praises to you, that we are able to sing that you are holy, that all glory belongs to you, that your word is right for teaching and not admonishment, that we can look to you, Father, for all that is right and good and just in this world. You will be forever ours, and we will be forever yours. Father, it is amazing. It's on, it's by your grace, it's by your blood shed on the cross that we come to you this morning. Lord, may you just use this time, may you be pleased with the worship that we offer you. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. I was surprised to look up and see almost all the seats filled. Praise be to the Lord. Uh, this morning, I bring uh, the sermon this morning. I'll preface it by saying somewhat challenging for me. In fact, it was written on the heels of this morning and partly last night because of circumstances in my own life um, and things that have come to my attention. I do not really uh, claim all authority on this issue. There are others, I'm sure, that would uh, be able to speak more effectively or informatively on what I will preach this morning. But I pray that God's word is glorified, that his word is taught this morning. The word of God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5 verse 20. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual senses and overturned these precious commandments. We have indeed ridiculed the absolute truth of scripture and called it pluralism. We have worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism and excused it in the name of love and tolerance. We have not only endorsed, but we have championed perversity and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and indolence and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn We have killed our unborn children and called it choice. There we are. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building character or building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. 
We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have disparaged the values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. We have excused the forceful hand of a tyrannical government that neither affirms or worships the God of heaven and called it the love of neighbor. We have neutered our law enforcement and called it equality. We have distorted order in our homes and mangled that for which we were created and called it marriage. We have engaged in the practice of calling evil good and good evil. Nehemiah says it as much. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Have we not, church, all but retreated from every vestige of society? And for what? To afford Satan his appetite and devouring? Though in the very act of not keeping God's commandment, his statutes, his rules, have we not weakened the church? The church, once militant, once willing to go out into society, now a little more than, what shall we call it, therapeutic? Right? What are we, church? I thought about this for a while. I came up with lip balm. Right? Mostly useless and unnecessary. But it's there only to feel good when there's some chapping needed to be smoothed over. And besides that, it smells nice. Right? Or maybe let's call the church something like indifferent. Indifference unwise and ignorant to all that we encounter. I think of it like this. The church is like that of a boy. Imagine this, walking on a path through the woods. And this boy happens upon a small, useless, and altogether unwanted sapling. You know, maybe this big. Small tree. This sapling is nothing of note, except it's right there, right there in the middle of its path. But what the boy, in his youthful musings, doesn't comprehend is that if given the opportunity, this sapling is most likely to grow up to an enormous height and would root itself in prominence and in obstruction on his very path. But now, perfectly able to step at the root and dispatch of this small obtrusive tree, the boy does what? Wanders past it, considers it of no worth, right? The sapling goes unnoticed. But as predicted, year after year, the sapling would increase. Its presence in the woods would grow ever more ominous and towering. Right? Now the boy, albeit he is older and stronger, walks that same path. But he can no longer take a feeble swing at the sapling. For why? For it is much too big. In fact, 100 men stacked in one direction would not be able to uproot the sapling any longer. It is undeniably prominent along the path in these woods. We are that boy, church, content to let the wickedness of our land and the folly of our government grow ever more ominous and towering until now those trees, once harmless little saplings, impede our steps and have us dodging left and right on the narrow path of righteousness. Now, I have always been told that one should avoid talking about two things, religion and politics, which is why our message this morning addresses two things, 
religion, and politics. Let us direct our attention then to our text this morning. If you would turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 17 through 19 is our sermon text. Let us stand now for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah 2, 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God you may be seated. Often people are indifferent because they have given up. They've given up any hope that anything can be done to change the situation. But to remain indifferent so as to suffer or to be humiliated without any effort in resisting a bully or let's say an oppressive government that victimizes you and your family, I'm here to say it's displeasing and it's dishonorable to God. He, that is God, expects us to stand for truth and righteousness and to protect those who are innocent. I'll quickly turn to 2 Samuel, the 10th chapter. Here we have David warring against the Ammonites and the Syrians. It says that David had sent Joab and a host of mighty men to battle. We'll pick up in verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, this is Joab, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Then he goes on to say this, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Hebrews 11.32 and 33, we have the great hall of heroes of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. It says, For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith did what? Conquered kingdoms. Performed acts of righteousness. It requires a great deal of faith to stand against wickedness and tyranny. It's easier to walk by the sapling. Ever since Adam's fall, man has lived in a fallen world where evil abounds. And that is not going to change until Christ returns. But does that mean God wants us to submit to evil until Christ returns? Absolutely not. How can Christians be the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, Matthew 5.14, if we're simply required to yield to darkness? 
There are Christians who would never approve of resisting governing officials for any reason. They believe it's okay to vote, but think it would be biblically incorrect to seek political office. They think it would be biblically incorrect to get involved in political parties, campaigning for political causes, or writing letters to Congress. What happens if we do this? What do we see? We see evil prospering, right? Evil prospers. Evil prospers when good men do nothing. How about this? They take away our health care. We allow it. They take away our insurance. We allow it. They take away our doctors. We allow it. They charge us thousands of dollars more a year. We allow it. They make legal products illegal. We allow it. They cripple our businesses, and we allow it. They, they announce by decree that we must ignore our most deeply held beliefs, and we allow it. Where is your spine, America? Yes, I know people are busy about the act of complaining. You hear it. You hear it here in the church. You hear it in your homes. You hear it in your family dinners. Lots of complaining. So what? People in the Soviet Union complained. People in Cuba complained. People in China complained, quietly. I complain. Complaining isn't the same as doing anything about it. In fact, much of the complaining that we hear sounds like resignation, right? <sighs> wow, things are really bad right now. Well, that's the way that things are, though. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. It's too bad, but it's just the way it is. A good biblical example of someone who said, it's too bad, it's the way it is, who did nothing about evil, Abraham's nephew Lot. He was a believer who desired the prosperous life of the big city, big city of Sodom, tormented by sexual perverse society there. What does the scripture not mention? Scripture doesn't mention even one thing Lot said or did to stem the tide of evil in Sodom. So it continued. So it degenerated, unabated until God finally had to destroy it. Our problem today is not so much the noise of the bad people, and they're making a lot of noise, but it's the silence from the good people. It's the silence from the Christians. Modern-day Americans might heed well this quote, tyrant, the more he is tolerated, the more he becomes intolerable. Those who recognize that man is a fallen creature with an inherited sin nature would have a hard time disagreeing with Daniel Webster when he says God grants liberty only to those who love it and are always ready to guard and defend it. Of all the people in the world, Christians cannot sit back passively as evil men distort God's work and his ministry here on earth. We cannot excuse our apathy by laying the blame solely on those evil people who are performing the injustice. We should concern ourselves still with this present world, right? We should concern ourselves with politics. We should concern ourselves with art, music, economics, literature, science, general advancement. Now, we don't expect to Christianize the world or its culture. We know better. We're realists, right? But as much as we are realists, we are not pessimists either. Saints, we are to stand against evil in this world, both personally and corporately, we will strive to undo the wrongs and to establish justice. We will seek 
to attack poverty. Why? Because it enslaves and it destroys. We will seek to attack the unlawful union of two individuals, if not solely between that of a man and woman. Why? Because it enslaves and it destroys. We will seek to attack the killing of the unborn. Why? Because it enslaves and it destroys. We will seek to attack the incessant and unholy propaganda which would resign us to fear and not to faith. Why? Because it enslaves and it destroys. We will seek to attack the business and temptation of sexual immorality. Why? Because it enslaves and it destroys. We will seek to attack. We will seek the excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ and none other. And he promises us this. So you no longer are a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those very things to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? This isn't me. It's Galatians. Galatians 4, 7 through 9. But we will do all this realizing that the church's mission is to what? Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not to establish a political party. I'm not here to say that. Those who willingly submit to tyranny do so because it offers them security. Because it benefits them financially. Because we get a stimulus check in the mail every month now for having X amount of kids. Because they're ignorant. Because they're lazy. Because they're afraid. Because they're indifferent. Because they're the little boy in the path in the woods that just sees a small little tree. Big deal. Small little tree. They will lose their honor. They'll become slaves of the state. They will lose their freedom, their privacy, their money, their property, and possibly even their lives. Apparently, a large number of Americans are either unaware of this danger or are aware but are unwilling or afraid to challenge the status quo. So they do nothing. They do nothing. Foolishly hoping that things will eventually get better. How about Nehemiah? What do we see in Nehemiah? Let's look at what's happening here. Back in the first and second chapters of, the, of this book. Who is Nehemiah? First chapter provides us many uh, good details. So from the information in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah given here, it's about 446 B.C. Okay? And Nehemiah is a Jewish man, and he's residing in one of the Persian capitals. The king is a man named Artaxerxes. He's the king of the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. Nehemiah's life is centered around serving and pleasing King Artaxerxes. But as a Jew living in exile, Nehemiah's thoughts often return to his homeland. Okay? We know this because at the very beginning of the book, we see Nehemiah inquiring about the state of Jerusalem. I'll read from it. Nehemiah 1, verse 3. 
verse 2 actually, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. So there had been a couple convoys returning from exile to uh, Jerusalem at this point. And so he had asked who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, me being Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Such a report is kind of difficult to fathom, right? I mean, in this context, sure, you know, it doesn't really apply to us. But here we have the most precious icons and monuments of his homeland being absolutely destroyed. Jerusalem life and society mostly obliterated, mostly laid waste. Someone come into America, take everything that Americans believe in, wipe it out, blank slate. Gone. Conceivably, many of his friends and family have been killed. And Nehemiah here is about 800 miles from home when he receives this news. We are not surprised to read Nehemiah's response in verse 4, are we? What does he say? I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Many of us can relate to this kind of response. A loved one is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, Spouse gets laid off, cherished relationship comes to an end, a family member turns their back on God. What do we do? We weep. We mourn. We can relate to Nehemiah's initial response to this difficult news. It comes naturally to us to weep, to mourn, to complain. We're good at it. All of us have a bit of crybaby hardwired into us. But can we relate to his subsequent response? What does it go on to say? Nehemiah not only wept and mourned, but he also fasted and prayed. And as we will soon see, Nehemiah is prepared to do more than just pray. He is also prepared to act on his prayer. The principle we see here in Scripture has to do with the intersection between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, it must be said that God does not need humans to carry out his will. It's not as if God is somehow handcuffed or handicapped by our lack of participation. And yet, we must confess that although God does not need our participation, he honors it. Right? The testimony and the whole counsel of Scripture reveals a God who delights in responding to human beings engaged in action for righteousness, engaged in action for Christ. This is an important principle to keep in mind, given that Christians are prone to move between two extremes. The first extreme rightly identifies that God is sovereign and does not need our help. But the first extreme wrongly concludes that since God is sovereign, we should not bother God with our petty requests. The thinking is that God will do whatever he wants to do, right? regardless of whether or not he is asked to do it. If this is Nehemiah's thinking here, we would have seen a very different response to the report. The report comes in from Jerusalem, saying, everything's in shambles, it's a shame, we're sorrowed. What, I imagine the response to have sounded something like this then. Well, this is indeed a setback, but don't be too alarmed. God will set things right before too long. Just wait it out. Just get on with the business here in the Persian capital. No need to fret. God will fix things in Jerusalem when he is good and ready. Friends, it is appropriate for us to regard God as sovereign. But if we allow such a conviction to slip into a kind of fatalism, 
or determinism that suggests that our involvement is inconsequential, of such a conviction should we repent. Nehemiah did not shrug his shoulders and say, God will do what he will do. No. Nehemiah wept. And then he prayed for the restoration of Jerusalem. The second extreme rightly identifies that prayer is necessary and that prayer changes things. But this extreme is wrong in suggesting that everything hinges on our prayers. If this was Nehemiah's theology, I imagine his response would have sounded something like this. Oh, this is all our fault. If only we would have prayed harder for the protection of our people. Jerusalem would not be in such a mess. It's not too late. We can fix this if we pray hard enough. God will do what we ask. In this view, God is no longer sovereign. We become sovereign. And our prayers serve to coax God into doing that which he might otherwise be reluctant to do. But Nehemiah's example is different. We see in Nehemiah's prayer, and we see in the nature of his interaction with King Artaxerxes, and we'll read that in a moment, we see a man who regards God as both utterly sovereign and utterly purposeful in the responsibilities given to man. We do not have to read too many verses into chapter 2 before we see that God has looked favorably upon Nehemiah's prayer. And let's read that. Nehemiah prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. We should note the reference to the month. So Nehemiah prayed this in the month of, I'm going to say Nisan, in chapter 2, verse 1. We are able to, to, to determine from that month that three or four months have passed since the recorded prayer of Nehemiah. This is important detail for all of us who expect God to instantly move mountains when we pray. Even if we can cite a scriptural promise assuring us that God will positively answer our prayer, the testimony of scripture is this that God answers our prayer at a time and in a manner that pleases him. Again, the reason for this has to do with the fact that God is sovereign and that prayer is not a, the equivalent of like a magical incantation producing instantaneous results. So approximately three months or four months after hearing the news of the desperate situation in Jerusalem, we have recorded for us an encounter between King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. The king inquires about the reason for Nehemiah's somber disposition. Nehemiah looks sad, right? Normally, Nehemiah didn't look sad. So here he's standing before the king. He looks sad. The king asks him, king asks him about it. And Nehemiah's response is as follows. Why should my face not be sad when the city 
The place of my father's tomb lies desolate, and his gates have been consumed by fire. Now, apparently sympathetic to Nehemiah's plight, the king asks, what would you request? What, what are you asking? What follows the king's question to Nehemiah is also striking and profound. Rather than immediately answer the king, we read in the first person, this is Nehemiah, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Right? Verse 4, chapter 2. Here, Nehemiah is before the king of the Persian Empire. Right? He's already admitted to the reader in verse 2 of chapter 2 that he is very much afraid. And why wouldn't he be, right? He's a little cupbearer, not much importance, standing before the ultimate authority. He's a little afraid. And yet he pauses to pray. It was probably not a long prayer. The king probably did not even notice the pause. But it was long enough for Nehemiah to call upon the God of the universe for help. Well, Nehemiah does one better. He prays before he speaks. How many of us can say this? Too often we think of prayer exclusively in terms of setting aside a little scheduled time where we can converse with God. This is not the model of prayer demonstrated by Nehemiah. Nehemiah demonstrates that God was often on his mind and that no time was the wrong time. No time was too short a time to pray to God. Think of your own situation. If Nehemiah can pause to pray silently in the presence of the king of the Persian Empire. That's a big deal. Surely there is no situation where you could say, I had no opportunity to pray. But Nehemiah did more than just pray. He was ready to act. Nehemiah asked the king for a leave of absence. So Nehemiah's in exile. He asked the king for leave of absence in order that he might return to Jerusalem and personally oversee the rebuilding of the city. Furthermore, Nehemiah requests letters to be written by the king, which he could present to the various governors in order to travel freely, to come and go, and he has to secure supplies necessary for rebuilding. And finally, we read in verse 8, what? The king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Do you see the overlap of human responsibility and God's sovereignty in the example of Nehemiah? Nehemiah prays because he understands that the remedy is way beyond his control. The tree on the path is way too big. He prays because he understands that his success depends on the good hand of the Lord being upon him. And yet, Nehemiah understands that he is not relieved from his position or his process. He's not simply pray, but he readies himself to go. He prepares letters. He asks the king for letters. He needs to go. He needs to get supplies. He needs to do things. He is personally willing to participate in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And what does this mean for us? I think it means two things. First, we pray. We must pray. Whatever our predicament, and our predicament's a good predicament right now, especially our predicament. We need God's hand to be upon us if we are to succeed. And secondly, we must do more than pray. We must be willing to personally roll up our sleeves and participate in that which we are praying for. We must commit ourselves to a high standard of prayer, and yet we must heed Nehemiah's example to be ready to go. True worship 
should always overflow into service all the time. No exceptions. Verse 9, chapter 2. Then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So what? This is a big deal. Then I came to the governors. We may think this is of little significance, but I think it's of great significance. The fact that Nehemiah showed up at the door of a governor, it's a big deal. We have to start in the little things, right? We have to be willing to. It's not that hard. If you are not called to a mission or if you don't find a purpose in what I'm saying this morning, you might pray, but it will never be said of you, so-and-so went to the governors. So-and-so did this. It will never be said of you if you are content to pray and let it stop there. Today, I hope that I have made it clear that there's a mission before the church. There's a mission to do something. There's a mission to take dominion, to take for Christ what has been taken away from the church. That from here you'll be willing to. We need to move. And that's the flat out fact. We need to get to a point of movement where that is our inertia, where our inertia isn't rest. So I went to Jerusalem, verse 11, this is Nehemiah, and was there three days. Nehemiah leaves exile, he has his letters with him, he's going to secure supplies and safe passage to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that I was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. What's going on here? What's Nehemiah doing? And this is kind of a cool little picture of Nehemiah crawling over the rubble around the walls of Jerusalem. Right? A little man on a mission. He's surveying the landscape. Right? He's surveying and he's picking out what needs to be repaired. Are we doing that, church? Are we surveying the landscape? And not looking at it from afar, not standing over here and casting our gaze. Oh, yeah. Oh, LGBTQ over there. Oh, they want to take our guns over there. Oh, maybe there's a, is there a, ma a ma vaccine mandate coming down there? Let's just, do I see that? What is that? No, he's right up on it. He's crawling over the walls that were crumbled down. Saints, he is on the wreckage. He's in the midst of the destruction. 
to the point where he had to get off his animal and move about. The America that once was, it's gone. And to pretend that our nation is still strong and great will only hasten its demise. We cannot restore our nation if we continue to pretend that all is well. Nehemiah couldn't engage in the act of repairing the wall if he neither looked upon it, surveyed it, crawled on it, went under the rocks, over the rocks, measured this rock. How big is this rock? That one goes up there. That one goes up there. He wouldn't know how to fix it if he wasn't getting his hands dirty, figuring it out. One of the strongest detriments to liberty is the attitude of denial. Some people will never acknowledge just how far the government has intruded into their lives or how many calculated steps it has taken to maintain its control over them. And one of the strongest detriments to acting to restore things and to restore the things of God is to deny them. To simply turn and look away. And then we get to our text, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, what did they say? Let us rise up. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Right? How do you get faithful work? Faithful testimony. Right? Nehemiah gave testimony that the hand of God had been good upon him. And from that came faithful work. I'm here to tell you, God is good. God is sufficient. God can rebuild this great nation. God can take our government, and Christ can subdue this government and this nation under his authority. God can do that. Isaiah 61. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he what? That he may be glorified. We would give faithful testimony to what the Lord does. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. 
They shall raise up the former devastations, the walls that were broken down, now reformed. They shall repair the ruined cities. Jerusalem was ruined, the devastations of many generations. Right, so when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, there wasn't a wall. There was a temple. There was a temple. There were, they had rebuilt the temple under Ezra. So they had come back under Zerubbabel, if that's right, and they had rebuilt the temple. But the surrounding enemies of the Lord were continuing to harass the people in the city of Jerusalem. They did not have a wall. They were content with having a temple. We see that. We're happy to have a church. But do we have a wall? What is our wall going to be? Are we going to build that wall? The wall's on the outside. Right? The wall wasn't in the temple. The wall's on the outside. We have to go outside. We have to go outside. We have to give faithful testimony to how the Lord is good. Christ is king. He's, Christ is king in our government. Christ is king in our art. Christ is king in our finances. Christ is king in our businesses. Christ is king all the way, all throughout. God is the author of freedom, right? He gave us volition and holds us accountable for the decisions we make. Now, we live in a world full of despots who would oppose the will of God, and as I see it, have enslaved a great majority of people on this great planet. Freedom is not free, and each generation is responsible for fighting against the enemies of freedom. If we fail in this endeavor, our children and grandchildren will no longer enjoy the blessings of freedom, but they will suffer under the scourge of slavery. Because it is so hard to acknowledge what the, our government has become, our American government, most people tend to look the other way, like I mentioned before. When abuse occurs, let's deny it. Consider this. What if someone accused a member of your family for harming a child? Simple as that. You would probably be offended. You would deny it. You may even become angry. But what you need to do is to find out if the allegation is true. Right? If it is, then you must get involved, and you must take steps. You must make sure that it never happens again. Anyone who ignores such an allegation and looks the other way to protect their guilty family member shares in their guilt and in their crime. The same is true when it comes to government abuse. It's wrong to look the other way. But so many people refuse to face the reality that America is no longer the land of the free. Each one of us has a responsibility to raise our voice, to sound the alarm, to go, to crawl over the rocks and the rubble of our society and our culture. We must demand that our leaders obey God in the Constitution. We must refuse to comply with any laws that infringe on our God-given rights. We will cease to be free if we lack any mindset and courage to see our government as it truly is. Our society is a degenerating cesspool Immorality. How else do you say it? 
Our political leaders are systematically intruding into our privacy and violating our God-given rights. And we, we've been tolerating it. Why? Why are we putting up with lies, scandals, abuses? Because of fear, ignorance, apathy? Because we seek security rather than freedom? Because we trust government more than we trust God? Because churches have become entertainment centers that focus on what? Therapy. Emotions. More than the word of God. Because we are lip balm. Unnecessary and useless. Because pastors have become politically correct cowards. Because we have kicked God out of the school. Kicked God out of the courthouse. Kicked God out of the houses of Congress. Because we have been conditioned to think like slaves rather than independent, free men and women. We as a nation have rejected the Lord and have no fear or concern that he will also reject us. I pray that isn't the case. We have not resisted evil in our society or in our government. We have surrendered our morality, our conscience, our freedoms without even putting up a fight. We've walked by that little sapling year after year after year after year. And we're content to do it. Consequently, we now have the kind of society and government we deserve. We are foolish to expect life to get better until we muster up the courage and the will to stand for righteousness and to resist evil. But it's not too late. Right? It's not too late. We can still be delivered if our hope is in the Lord. Our problems are not too big for him. He can break the shackles of bondage that have been forged against us. But we must turn back to God. We must reject this man-made construct grounded in covetousness, envy, and greed and recommit ourselves to godly values and godly living. Like Nehemiah, we can rebuild the walls of our society, that which protects what the Lord would have us protect. Final verse of Nehemiah chapter 2. Final two verses. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Yes. And yes. Yes, 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 yes. Nehemiah said, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we as servants will arise and build. But you, you have no right, no portion, no claim in Jerusalem. Saints, those that oppose us have no portion, no right, no claim in what God is doing, in what God is building. And the God of heaven will make us prosper. But we need to pray. And I'm here to tell you, I'm willing to come and pray. I'm willing to come Friday night, sit myself down in that room and pray. Because we need it. 
We need to all be praying. Three, four, five, six months, a year, two years, whatever it takes. And then we need to act. And we need to rise up and build. Put our walls back in place. Get out of this church. Get out there. Claim what has been taken from us. It's all been taken from us, right? Let's get it back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can stand on what you have done, what you have accomplished, and what you will do, Lord. But we're not just out here floating on some airy nothingness that would, you know, give us false inspiration to go take up any action. But, Lord, you have accomplished, and you are the God of heaven, and you will make us prosper. Right? Nothing else do we even lay claim to. We don't even look for any other person, entity, or idol, Lord, that would remotely give us any assurance or security in the things that you call us to here in Scripture in Nehemiah. It comes only and solely from you. It's on your back. It's on the scars. It's on the blood of Christ who accomplished this very work. Lord, may we arise. May we stand up. May we suit up, put on the armor of God. May we go forth. May we train ourselves diligently to do the work that you call us to, to take dominion in the area of our government, politics, society, and culture. Lord, so many of what of the people and the men that have come before us in Scripture, like I read in Hebrews, they have gone before and they have done acts of righteousness and they have conquered kingdoms because, Lord, they have prayed, they have sought you, and you have made it so. My prayer is that as we go forth, that it would be made so it is your will. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.